Greetings, this is Jeff Riddle. I'm the pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. This is going to be an audio version of a book review that I have written. The book under review was written by Gregory R. Lanier and William A. Ross, and it's titled The Septuagint, subtitled What It Is and Why It Matters. This was published by Crossway in 2021, and the book is 216 pages in length. This review that I have written appeared in the Puritan Reform Journal, volume 15, number 2, in July of 2023, and it can be found on pages 180 to 185. I also did a Word Magazine podcast with an extended draft with extra comments, uh, reviewing this book back in January of 2023. Here now, however, is uh, an audio version of the written review. This book is co-written by New Testament Lanier and Old Testament Ross, professors at Reformed Theological Seminary, Orlando and Charlotte, respectively, and it comes out of an elective course they co-teach on the Septuagint. It provides a helpful review of basic facts about and an informed discussion of the influential ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. Structurally, the book consists of two parts. Part 1, chapters 1 through 4, answers what is the Septuagint. Part 2, chapters 5 through 7, addresses why does it matter. The most important thing to emerge in Part 1 is that the term Septuagint is not easy to define. The authors note that it is at best, quote, a mediocre term with lots of baggage, end quote, page 31. The so-called Septuagint is often given at least three different meanings. See page 35. In its most ambiguous sense, it is used to refer to, quote, ancient Jewish Greek scriptures in general, end quote. In a slightly more restricted sense, it refers to the literary corpus found in manuscripts like Codices Vaticanus or Alexandrinus. In the historical sense, it describes, quote, the earliest translation of the Greek Pentateuch, end quote, or, quote, the Septuagint proper, end quote. Some prefer the term Old Greek in reference to the oldest translation of any given book of the Hebrew Bible, see page 35. In the end, the authors suggest Greek Old Testament as the best reference to, quote, the various translations and later revisions of the canonical books of the Hebrew Bible, end quote, page 36. Not only is the term Septuagint ambiguous, but so is any attempt to define a uniform Septuagint style, since, according to Lanier and Ross, the Greek Old Testament follows at least three different translation traditions, the Pentateuchal tradition, the Paraphrastic tradition, and the Revisional tradition, i.e. the so-called Kai-Gay movement, a Hebrew-oriented so-called ultra-literal style. See pages 74 to 78 and pages 87 to 88. Things are made even more complicated by various recensions of the Septuagint, including the three Jewish ones, that of Aquila, Symmachus, and Theodotin, as well as that of Origen's Hexapla 
and the Antiochene or Lucian recension. In the end, the authors conclude that to speak of the Septuagint as a singular textual entity is simply not possible. See page 98. Part 2 examines the significance of the Septuagint. Why does it matter? First, the work asks why the Septuagint matters for the study of the Old Testament. The authors suggest three reasons. They say study of the Septuagint helps us understand, one, the boundaries of the Old Testament, particularly with regard to the Apocrypha, two, the contents of the Old Testament, concerning reconstruction of the words of the Hebrew Bible, and three, the early interpretation of the Old Testament serving as an early Jewish so-called commentary. Second, the book asks why the Septuagint matters for the study of the New Testament. The authors again suggest three reasons. The study of the Septuagint helps us understand, one, in what sense it served as the so-called Bible for many early Christians, two, how it shaped the language of the New Testament, and three, how New Testament authors quoted the Greek Old Testament. Third, it asks about the authority of the Septuagint, offering a threefold framework for understanding its authority, normative, derivative, and interpretive. Concerning normative authority, the authors insist that the Hebrew Bible generally provides the standard canon and text of the Old Testament, but they also suggest that the Septuagint, quote, often plays a key text-critical role in reconstructing the text, end quote, page 192. As for derivative authority, the authors note that the Greek translation of the Old Testament should be approached as we do, quote, any other faithful translation of Scripture, end quote, page 179. It has authority to the degree that it accurately conveys the original. Regarding interpretive authority, as previously noted, it serves as, quote, a commentary on the Hebrew scriptures, end quote, page 189. The book concludes with an appendix covering 10 key questions about the Septuagint. This section serves as a review of some points, as in question one, what is the Septuagint, but also expands the conversation to some practical issues. See question nine, how should I handle the seemingly threatening issues that arise when the so-called Septuagint comes up in ministry settings. At least four things were helpful about this book. First, as noted above, I appreciated the author's suggestion that the term Septuagint can be confusing and it is likely better to speak instead of the Greek Old Testament. In the conclusion of part one, the authors state that, quote, Speaking of the Septuagint as a singular, coherent, textual entity is simply not possible. End quote, page 98. They add that it is, it is even difficult to locate the text of the so-called Septuagint, since there is still no single book that contains it. See page 98. Second, I resonated with the author's firm declaration that it is, quote, an oversimplification, end quote, to say that the Septuagint alone was the so-called pew Bible of early Christianity or, quote, the official Bible of the church, end quote. See pages 133 and 138. 
As the authors point out, the New Testament writers had access to the Old Testament in various forms beyond the Septuagint, including the Hebrew original, Aramaic translations, other Greek translations, or some combination of sources. See pages 136 to 138. The Old Testament citations in the New Testament are in no way uniformly from the Septuagint. One example cited is the fact that Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10, is quoted five times in the New Testament, and each citation differs from the others. See pages 139 to 140. Third, the authors generally pre- present a view of the Apocrypha consistent with the classic Protestant view as articulated in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 3. Thus, they exhort the reader, quote, You should not follow the broader canon found in certain Greek manuscripts, but you should read the Apocrypha to understand the Jewish and early Christian world, end quote, page 193. A fourth part of this book that I found very helpful was the discussion of those places in the New Testament where the Septuagint is, in fact, clearly quoted. The author's correct attempts to read too much into the significance of such quotations. Thus, they write, quote, Clearly, a New Testament author's use of a source, even one with an it-is-written formula, does not imbue it with inspired status or even imply that the author thought the source was inspired. Paul's use of the Greek poet Aratus and Jude's apparent use of First Enoch does not magically make those texts inspired or normative. That is, they do not become scripture in the same sense in which they are quoted. Such inspired use of non-inspired sources simply conveys that the information being used is true and thus pertinent to the argument being made. This, di- this distinction should also apply at least as an initial starting point, to quotations from the Greek Old Testament. End quote, page 183. The authors later add that the apostolic authors do not necessarily sanction any singular translation of any Old Testament passage as exclusively so-called right. See page 185. They sum up by saying, quote, quotations of the Greek Old Testament in the New Testament do not mean that the quoted textual form is itself inspired, or that the textual form should necessarily replace the form of the Masoretic text if different, nor that of the Greek Old Testament as a whole, uh, nor that the Greek Old Testament as a whole must be viewed as normative scripture. End quote, page 187. There is, however, at least one highly significant aspect of this study of the Septuagint, that some confessional readers in particular might rightly question. This aspect is the author's contention that the Septuagint might be used to so-called reconstruct the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, or to use the language in their discussion regarding the framework of authority, that the Septuagint bears at least some normative authority with respect to establishing the text of the Old Testament. On one hand, the authors generally acknowledge the traditional Masoretic Hebrew text as the ultimate standard for the Old Testament. As noted above, for example, they challenge suggestions that the standard Hebrew text must be corrected based on variant quotations from the Greek Old Testament in the New Testament. On the other hand, however, They also warmly embrace the assumptions of modern textual criticism 
that the traditional Hebrew text is corrupted, and the Septuagint, as well as other ancient versions, may be used to correct it. This is stated from the outset in a discussion of translation and textual notes appearing in modern versions. As the authors explain, quote, such footnotes indicate that the Masoretic text, while very reliable and ancient overall, is not perfect and does not by itself contain the singular original text of the Old Testament. End quote, page 27. Later in the discussion, the authors use a film analogy, suggesting that the Greek translation serves as a so-called director's cut of the Old Testament. See page 109. Though affirming that in most cases there is little reason to doubt the authenticity of the Hebrew text, the authors continue, quote, But in many cases it appears that the Greek wording may have a superior claim to authenticity than the wording found in the traditional Hebrew text, end quote, pages 114 to 115. They add, quote, in such situations, the Greek Old Testament, particularly the reconstructed Old Greek, is like finding lost archival footage of a movie, giving access to the earlier and superior reading that has apparently changed over time. And a Greek variant's claim to originality is strengthened when it is corroborated by the same wording elsewhere, i.e. Dead Sea Scrolls, Latin Vulgate, Syriac, Peshitta, Aramaic Targums. See page End quote, page 115. The authors thus conclude that, quote, the study of the Greek Old Testament is valuable for understanding and at times reconstructing the wording of the Hebrew Bible. End quote, page 129. This leads the authors to, the authors to offer a nuanced claim of so-called normative authority for the Greek Old Testament while arguing that, quote, all the evidence points, points toward the Hebrew Bible, end quote, as the place where, quote, normative scripture, end quote, that is, canon, books, and text is found, the authors nonetheless suggest that the Greek Old Testament is valuable, quote, to unlocking the history of the Hebrew Bible, end quote, page 168. They then seem to hedge on this assertion by also declaring that it, quote, should not supplant that which bears normative authority, end quote, page 168. In a later table, the role of the Greek Old Testament with respect to normative authority is perhaps more clearly stated, as it reads, quote, Hebrew is normative canon and text. Greek Old Testament often plays a key text-critical role in reconstructing the text, end quote. See Table 7.5 on page 192. In the closing appendix, the authors respond to the question, does the Greek Old Testament have any authority in today's church? As follows, quote, Based on the historical arguments presented in this book, the Hebrew Bible should be preferred as the normative canon and text, although the Greek Old Testament plays a helpful role in establishing the latter. End quote, page 200. Also in the appendix, the authors anticipate practical pastoral concerns that might arise when laymen are told that the Hebrew text of the Old Testament is corrupt and needs to be corrected by the Septuagint. Quote, 
It raises uncomfortable questions about the inerrancy of the Old Testament because it provides data showing that the, tr the tr transmission of the Hebrew text was not pristine. End quote, page 201. Based on the four helpful aspects of the work, which I noted above, this book is to be commended. It will serve as a helpful resource for those who want to understand the Septuagint, or the Greek Old Testament, better. Rightful concerns, however, might also be raised from a confessional perspective with respect to its suggestion that the Greek Old Testament be used as a, a so-called authority to so-called reconstruct the Hebrew text. Let me trace several of these concerns. First, this approach appears to clash with the pro classic Protestant view of the providential preservation of Scripture as outlined in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1 and paragraph 8, which declares that, quote, the Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages are therefore authentical, end quote. The layman's concern addressed in the appendix will likely not be so much with the inerrancy of Scripture as with its inspiration and preservation. Second, this approach is at odds with a distinct tradition in Protestant scholasticism that rejected the use of the Septuagint and other ancient versions to so-called correct the traditional text of the Hebrew Old Testament. John Owen, for example, refuted efforts in his day to correct the Hebrew by using the Septuagint, observing, quote, strange that so corrupt a stream should, should be judged a fit means to cleanse the fountain, end quote. Francis Turretin offered an extended discussion of the Septuagint in his Institutes in uh, Book 1, and you can see pages 127 to 130 in the Institutes, in which he examined its authority and whether, quote, it ought to be regarded as authentic and equal to the sources, end quote. Here is his conclusion, quote, Our adversaries maintain it, we deny it, end quote. The book's approach on this matter is thus out of step with the wisdom of these Protestant fathers. Third, this approach presents a view that many will perceive to be problematic with respect to its proposal of the Septuagint as holding some measure of normative authority for Christianity. Part of the problem lies with the authors making an artificial distinction between canon, that is to say the books of the Bible, and text. They rightly suggest that the Septuagint should not be used as a normative standard for acknowledging the canonical books of the Old Testament with respect to the Apocrypha but then maintain that it may be used as a normative standard for determining the canonical text of the Old Testament. Would not Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholics be justified in charging the authors with inconsistency on this point? If the Septuagint can be used as a normative authority in determining the text of the Old Testament, why can it not also be used in determining the books of the Old Testament? A better solution would be to say that it has no normative authority, either for determining canonical books or texts. Over the last century and a half, 
The inroads of modern textual criticism have greatly influenced the modern text and translation of the Bible. This has been especially true of the New Testament. For a long time, however, even Protestants who embraced modern textual criticism continued to affirm the traditional Masoretic Hebrew text as the standard for the Old Testament. Beginning in the mid-20th century, however, the text of the Old Testament has also been challenged with suggestions of needs for so-called reconstruction, based in part on the evidence of ancient translations like the Septuagint. See this work's helpful review of the English Standard Version's incorporation of the readings from the Septuagint on pages 116 to 117. This book, by two Reformed and Evangelical scholars, affirms this trend. This reviewer, however, sees this approach as problematic. Here ends the review. You can receive audiobook reviews and notes like this one, Word Magazine podcasts and sermons by subscribing to Christ Reformed Baptist Church's sermon audio feed on iTunes by searching for Christ Reformed Baptist Church. For video material, you can subscribe to the Word Magazine channel on youtube.com. You can also find book reviews, notes, and articles on my blog at jeffriddle.net. And you can follow me on Twitter or X at Riddle 1689.